Welcome to the STRU Podcast, your number one online hosting community, helping you achieve your goals through short-term rental investing. Now, here's your host, Richard Furtick. All right, friends, STRU Podcast listeners, today I'm really excited to have William or Bill Exeter from Exeter 1031. And for those of you that have watched my YouTube channel in the past, you know that as far as I'm concerned, the 1031 tax deferral is one of the best legal ways to defer taxes and keep your uh, investment egg whole and compound that entire thing. So if you have not done a 1031 in the past and you have investment property, you really need to listen to this and contact Bill for his expertise because like I said, the 1031 is the single best thing to legally defer taxes potentially forever. And I've been deferring taxes since 1998 on investment property, and I plan on deferring them until I die, at which point my kids will receive a stepped-up basis. So, Bill, with no further introduction, please tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do, how you do it, and why 1031s are the best things since sliced bread. <laughs> Perfect. Um, well, I've been in the uh, 1031 exchange industry now for a little over 35 years, so we've been doing nothing but tax-deferred strategies, um, and uh, so that's my background. Before that, I was in commercial banking. Uh, that'll give you kind of a flavor for how long we've been doing this. Uh, we are all about helping investors sell assets, so in this case, real estate, and deferring their state and federal taxes by reinvesting in other properties. So that's kind of all, all we're doing. Um, and, and that's kind of our focus in terms of helping the investors save taxes, keep the money in their pocket, and building their net worth. Uh, so we've done it for a long, long time. Our role is the qualified intermediary. So we act as the qualified intermediary, or other people call it accommodator, facilitator, uh, what have you. But we're the middle person, if you will, uh, in structuring the actual 1031 exchange transaction. And it's really, um, you know, a lot of people call it a transaction tool, et cetera, but it's really a wealth-building strategy, like you indicated, for the entire lifetime. Uh, it allows the investor to keep deferring over and over and over, uh, building their wealth faster because they're not paying federal or state taxes. Uh, so all of their money is being reinvested. All of their money is earning additional income. Uh, and then when they pass on, like you said, they get to step up in cost basis. So it's all about leaving more wealth to your heirs and, and whoever that means to you. Uh, we have a morbid sense of humor. We call it swap until you drop. <laughs> well, that's okay because, you know, as long as you don't pay taxes, we'll call it whatever it is. But it's it's an amazing wealth generation tool. And for those that are perhaps uninitiated or haven't heard this, like, it almost sounds too good to be true. And generally, when I hear things that sound too good to be true, I'm suspect or there's some risk involved that I'm unaware of. So let's just get a couple things out. Is this risky? Is this legal? Good question. So, so it's not risky and it, it is legal. It actually has been in the United States tax code since 1921. Um, so any clients that are concerned just have their CPA or attorney you know, do a quick review and they'll find that it's been in the code for a long, long time. And as long as it's structured properly, there's no risk. It's a very, uh, I shouldn't say easy. It's the, the structure and the process is very easy to go through. It's a little challenging with the deadlines, which we can talk about later, but, um, but there's no risk. It is something that's authorized since 1921. It goes way, way, way back. Yeah. And so from, from my perspective and putting in my own words, 
there is no risk of this being um, considered illegal or in the case of an audit, it'll stand up in an audit. There is execution risk, which Bill has indicated. There are strict guidelines, strict reinvestment uh, criteria and deadlines. And if you miss those, then the entire transaction may be null and void and you may have to pay taxes. But since we know what they are and you can work with a qualified intermediary like Bill, as long as you prepare and keep those deadlines in mind, you should be okay. And then it's perfectly legal. And even if you get audited, it will stand up. It's part of the tax code. And I believe it was actually implemented to encourage farming community to buy new uh, assets to sell old assets, relinquish them, replace them, and reinvest the proceeds because otherwise these farming operations would just have so many assets that have no value and pay taxes on it, they couldn't continue farming. Is that the origin? That, that's true. And it also goes back even before then when, um, and this goes way back, even to the colonial days, this is before it existed in the tax code, but People didn't know how to value, per se, a cow or, or grain or what have you. And so they. this is kind of the precursor where it led up to this way. So, you know, if you swap this for that, we'll just consider it an even exchange and it won't be taxable. And so back then, a lot of them were, or maybe all of them were concurrent exchanges because they didn't know what the value of these things were. Uh, even in the early, early days, you could uh, do it with stocks and bonds because they didn't know, necessarily know what the actual value was. You could swap them. And then 1921 is when it entered the code and it started to be uh, more defined over, over the years. Great. And so just to really be clear, I believe real estate and hard assets are the only asset classes that this works for. And that's what we're going to focus on. But as great as it would be to sell IBM stock and buy Microsoft, you're going to pay capital gains tax. And it's short-term tax if it's less than a year, and it's long-term if it's held longer. And therefore, your entire investment dollar has been compromised. And the rate of growth and the compounding effect is now on the net remaining amount, as opposed to in rental real estate, which is the focus of the STRU podcast, you have your entire nest egg compounding and growing as long as you follow the criteria. So what we're talking about are reinvestment of a sale of an investment property. This does not apply to your personal property. It doesn't apply to your vacation property unless it's an investment property. And there are ways to take your personal property and your vacation property, turn them into investment properties, which I have done because I don't want to pay the taxes, and then relinquish them. So there's all sorts of things. Once you understand the power of this and the rules, you can just adhere to them and apply them and defer taxes indefinitely. So, Bill, you're the expert. Why don't you walk us through what an investment property looks like and what it doesn't look like that would qualify for a 1031? And just to underscore this, this is only if you have a gain. If you're coming out, breaking even, you don't need to do this. If you're upside down and you're losing money, there's no advantage. This is only if you've made wide decisions, you've held a long time, and you have a capital gain that you'd like to preserve. That's true. That's a good point because if you structure a 1031 exchange and later you find out you actually have a loss on the property, you have to defer the loss, which probably makes no sense. So you have to make sure that you do have a taxable gain if, before you proceed. So before we do anything, I always recommend, you know, they sit down with their accountant and, and really get a good grasp on exactly what they're 
depreciation recapture is, their capital gains, etc., so they know what it looks like in black and white, and then decide whether it makes sense. And in most cases today, you've got a gain, so it absolutely makes sense. And uh, going back to your question on on what qualifies, it's what we call qualified use property. Uh, there's a lot of uh, just a tremendous amount of misinformation out there on this whole concept. So investors are often told that they don't qualify for a 1031 exchange because they haven't held title to the property long enough. And what does long enough mean? Um, and advisors recommend some one year, some one year a day, some two years. And we'll get people who say, well, I'm getting different answers. So what does it really mean? And, and so to cut to the chase, the tax code and the regulations actually have no holding period required. Uh, there's no set one-year requirement or two-year requirement. What it does say is that the investor has to have the intent to hold for rental investment or business use. Now, advisors are recommending that one year, that two-year holding period because it's easier to prove intent if you've got that history. But the real issue is if the investor gets audited, can they show they really did have the intent to hold for rental investment or business use? And if they can do that, it doesn't matter how long the holding period is. So one day would qualify if they could prove intent. Now, one day is awfully difficult to prove intent. It looks like you're flipping the property. So let me get back to what Which, qualifies. I'm sorry, Bill. To be clear, if your intent is to flip a property, you cannot use a 1031 to defer taxes. Is that That's right. That's exactly flip? right. That's exactly right. So part of the qualified use requirement is the intent to hold for rental investment or business use. Um, and that's where there's a lot of gray area as well. So what defines it? So if you're a builder, developer, contractor, uh, your goal typically is to buy, build, sell. So you're not holding for an investment. You're holding for sale. It's inventory in the development business. And, and going back to your comment, if it's a, a rehabber, flipper, your intent is really buy, rehab, and sell or flip. So you're holding for a uh, sale. You're not holding for investment. So it's inventory in your flipping business. So either of those examples don't qualify for 1031 exchange treatment because you're not holding for investment. You're actually holding for sale. Now, there's all sorts of ways to reposition that. So if you're a rehabber flipper uh, and you bought property and you rehabbed it, but instead of selling it, you decided to hold that one and rented it out, then that one would qualify for exchange treatment. So they don't define you as a person, as a flipper. They actually look at each individual property. And then you have to prove your intent. So if you do both, if you're a buy and hold and you're a flipper, uh, I would almost have two separate entities, maybe two separate LLCs, one for those you buy and hold and one for those that you flip. And that way you can clearly show this entity is always the buy and hold and the other entity is always the, the buy with the intent to sell as soon as you're done with your rehabbing or development activity. Now, one of the things that I've sort of learned uh, through this process is but your intent can change, right? So you you could intend to rent and get a great bid and decide to sell and flip. Likewise, you could decide that you were going to sell and flip and the market has softened and you decide to, to rent. So intent can change, but you want to document it. Is it enough to merely list your property on Airbnb, maybe host one or two people or use traditional brokers and be on MLS for rent? Is that proof of intent? Good question. It could be, you know, short-term situations, maybe one or two Airbnb rentals that were a week here and a week there, and then you move into the property. 
it really looks like your intent was to move into it. So they're going to ask the question, you know, why just one or two weeks of rental and then you moved into it? Um, so if you're going to move into it or if you're going to use it or live in it, I'd, I'd like to see a lot more rental activity because it's easier to prove that was the intent. Uh, however, if you bought property, your intent was to rent it out through Airbnb. Um, a month after you purchased it, you had medical problems or financial problems, something like that that was devastating. You had to get rid of some properties. You moved into it. There's a business reason for doing that, so it could still qualify because your intent was forced to change because of other situations out of your control. So it just depends on the fact pattern. Uh, a very short-term holding period, you know, one week or two weeks with Airbnb is risky. It's hard to prove that was your real intent, but it's possible. It just depends on all the facts. Right. And And conversely, what I'm in the process of doing right now is Due to a divorce, the, the home that my family lived in was no longer the, fam, the family home on a go-forward basis. We have two different homes. But rather than pay a very significant capital gain on that, what we did was we moved out and we've been renting it. It becomes two years on January of 2019. So we have two different tax years. We've been paying you know, taxes for 24 months on this clearly investment property. And here's an example. We took our family property, turned it into an investment property. We will 1031 it using Bill and his qualified intermediary professional exchange or PYP. And we're going to defer the taxes on that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. In fact, that's one of my favorite examples to use because a lot of people may have a primary residence and the gain might be more than $500,000. So a lot of people assume that if I sell it, I get the $500,000 tax-free. Uh, that depends. Uh, in this case, you've moved out. You've converted it to investment. You've lived there for two years. You still satisfy the two yeah. out of the last five years requirements. So you get $500,000 tax-free, but any gain over that could be deferred through a 1031 exchange. So it's, a, it's an awesome way of combining the two tax codes, that $500,000 tax-free exclusion and the 1031 exchange. Uh, we had a client three or four years ago that, that bought a house in La Jolla. Um, that actually, the, the sale was three or four years ago, but they bought the house like 42 years ago. Husband and wife, elderly, uh, having health problems, wanted to go back to the East Coast where their kids and grandkids were there. But their capital gains $8 million. That's just the profit. Um, so they just wouldn't sell because they would have gotten killed. But they used the strategy you just mentioned. So um, they moved out, rented it for 24 months. That's a perfect time, I think, because that straddles three tax returns. It's really solid proof that was your intent. And then they sold, and they got 500000 tax-free, and they deferred the other $7.5 in gain through 1031 exchanges. So it was a win-win strategy for everybody. That's exactly, that's exactly right. And that's sort of where this education and this research and networking and understanding sort of the tax code and understanding rental income and having a, a holistic overview about what you're trying to do really makes a big difference because let's just say that you're a rental property owner and you're not converting your primary home. You're just a rental property owner. If you don't know about 1031s, every time you sell something, you're paying 20 some odd percent or more between state and federal in taxes. So your $100 goes to 75 and then you sell again and you're just, you're competing against yourself and you're paying taxes, which is fine, but it's unnecessary, right? In this Absolutely. Particular, That's right. In this particular case, you're disadvantaged 
you just are unaware of the opportunities, which is why I wanted to really bring Bill um, to this podcast and for our paid members, he's going to answer their one-on-one questions right after this via Facebook Live, and we really appreciate your time. So oh, sure. I get that this is a great thing. I understand that it's perfectly legal. I understand that there's some deadlines. Let's focus on the deadlines, like what do you need to do and what's the timing of it? And then what is the replacement property restrictions? Because you can't just go okay. out and buy your personal home. That's true. That's exactly right. Yep. The, the timing considerations are probably the most difficult part of the 1031 exchange because they're pretty tight. So when your sale property closes, or what we call the relinquished property, and let's say you close today, so tomorrow is day number one, uh, you have 45 days to identify what you're going to acquire. Well, 45 days moves pretty quickly. That's not a lot of time. That's really six weekends. So if the investor has waited till they're in the 45-day period to start looking for property, they're going to find themselves under a lot of stress. And it has to be identified during that 45-day period. There's no way to get an extension of that. Um, so it just is what it is. So investors should always start looking for replacement property way in advance and try to find property they like that's suitable. Try to find a way to tie it up, maybe a lease with an option to buy, uh, maybe go into uh, under contract with an extended closing. So they they know they've got the property. The risk is they've sold their relinquished property. And if they can't identify and then acquire their replacement property, the exchange fails and it becomes taxable, and that is painful. Um, so get your replacement property lined up as soon as you possibly can. Uh, once you've identified that in that 45-day window, then you have an additional 135 days after that to actually complete your exchange. So it's a total of 180 days, 45 days to identify, and an additional uh, 135 days to wrap it up and actually close on your acquisitions. Right. So, for instance, I've known for the better part of two years that my family was moving out of our primary home. We were turning it into an investment property and that I would be 1031ing it. So using myself as an example, I've been looking for replacement property for almost two years. Not the actual property, because I know that whatever's listed two years ago won't be for sale when I'm ready. But I've started to look at triple net leases. I've started looking at single tenant triple net leases. I've started looking at land. I've started looking at all sorts of things and formulating a reinvestment strategy so that when my clock starts, 45 days is actually a pretty decent amount of time because I sort of know what it is that I want to do. And now I'm just picking from what's for sale at the right price. Absolutely. Yep. And, and that's the perfect way to approach it. You know, plan well in advance, get your ducks in a row, and then you're in good shape. And the replacement property they acquire has to be held for the same purpose. So it has to be rental, investment, or business use. So you had indicated, you know, you can't buy replacement property and move into it one day. And that's absolutely correct. Uh, they have to have the intent to both sell and then buy and reinvest in assets that are rental, investment, or business use. You know, after, let's say, 24 months, you can certainly change your intent. So like you said, intent can always change. Uh, you just don't want to buy a replacement property and move into it day one. That will not qualify. Uh, even if you rent it for a week or two or you list it for rental for a week or two and then move into it, that's a high risk unless you can show a good reason for that short-term rental period. Uh, you really, to be safe, we always recommend 24 months. That's just our opinion, but 24 months straddles three tax returns. Really good proof. It's very difficult for anybody to challenge that. 
Um, anything under one year, you know, the shorter the period, the more risk, more difficult it is to prove what your intent really was. Yeah, and there's really no reason to to push that timeline unless you have a really valid reason, right? Like if you're exactly, selling, yep. if I'm selling rental real estate and I like a different state or a different, you know, I don't want single family home, I want multifamily home. My intent is to reinvest and have more rental income. So as long as you're doing this for the right intent, you don't have any of these concerns. One thing I do want to touch on is 45 days to identify the replacement property seems very little because deals break all the time, but I believe the best practice is to identify multiple opportunities and try and close the best one first and the second best second and so on, right? You don't just say, gee, the seller changed their mind, they walked away, and now I'm paying taxes. That's true. And, and there's a number of different identification rules. Most people use the three property rule. So you can identify up to three. And as you in indicated, you know, the first one is probably your primary target and second, third are backup properties. Uh, and if the first one falls out for any reason and you can't acquire it, you go to your second, you go to your third. Now, the last couple of years have been really tough. The market's been hot. You're getting multiple offers and bidding wars and things like that. So the second and third properties are probably long gone. Uh, it appears the market is beginning to shift. Uh, it's probably becoming more of a normalized market. So I think that three property identification period will be a little easier going forward than what it has been over the last couple of years. Uh, you also get investors who say, look, I want to sell one larger property. Maybe it's a million or a million, five million or two million dollar asset, but I don't want to go and buy one asset worth the same amount. I want to buy three, four, five, six smaller properties. Then you'd probably look at the 200% rule. So if you sell for $2 million, 200% would be $4 million. They could identify as many properties as they want as long as they don't identify more than $4 million in value. So uh, if you're trading equal or up, you're probably going to buy one property. You use the three-property rule. If they want to diversify and buy a bunch of smaller assets, they're probably going to look at the 200% rule so they can identify a lot more smaller properties. Cool. And then um, talk about, let's just assume most people that are listening to this are Airbnb-centric and it's single-family home. Can you um, do a 1031 and buy multifamily? Can you do 1031 and buy a strip mall? Can you do a 1031 and buy land? Can you do a 1031 and buy uh, a motor yacht that does cruises? Good question. In fact, there's a, that's a, probably the second most confusing category to investors. So qualified use is the first, you know, what qualifies, et cetera. Uh, the second is like-kind property. And there's still a lot of curriculum out there that says if you sell a condo, you have to buy a condo. And it's absolutely not true. Um, the easiest way to look at it, like-kind means you got to sell real estate, you got to buy real estate. Simple as that. So all the different asset classes you just mentioned are all considered like-kind to each other. You can sell a single family that you're renting through Airbnb, and you can buy a commercial office building. Um, even things like air rights, water rights, mineral rights, oil and gas interests are usually considered real estate under most states' law. So that'll be considered like-kind property. So there's really a lot of opportunity to diversify or reposition your assets uh, depending on what your goals and objectives are. We saw a lot of commercial folks uh, before or entering into this last recession where they sold commercial and then they exchanged in single family so they could take advantage of market timing. 
And then about two to three years ago, we started to see them go full cycle. And the same folks were selling single family, going back into commercial, either office, retail, industrial, et cetera. Again, all of that's like kind. So it's a great way to kind of reposition to take advantage of the market. Now, what about like mixed use? So, for instance, one of the things that we're seeing in Airbnb is this um, experience. And people like, you know, say like an RV or an Airstream and they park it in, a, in an RV park and they Airbnb it. Um, but at the same time, my guess is sometimes that RV is being towed behind their house, their car and they're going to the Grand Canyon. So what about that sort of nebulous area? Where, where does the line get drawn? Good question. It has to be considered real estate. So like in your example with the Airstream is backed up and they just plop it down on the lot for a weekend or what have you, because it's on wheels and portable, that the Airstream itself is not considered real estate. The dirt would be. So if they're buying the dirt, that would be like kind. If they're buying the Airstream, that's actually considered personal property, uh, which means non-real estate. If the Airstream is such where it's permanently attached, they put a skirt, put up the polling, drop cement, etc., so it would take a day or two to move it, that's probably going to be considered real estate at that point. Uh, then it would qualify for a like-kind treatment. Um, the multi-use also brought up another thought, which is you, we often see people who maybe buy a 10-unit apartment complex. Uh, and they live in one unit and rent the other nine out. So if all the units are the exact same size, just to keep it easy, then 10% is a primary residence and 90% is a rental property. So whether they're exchanging out or exchanging in, the 90% would be a 1031 exchange, the 10% would be the primary residence, and they'd get the 250 or $500,000 tax-free exclusion. So we call that split-use property. But uh, there's a lot of creative ways to kind of combine that usage. Yeah, and interestingly, um, just so that we try and give everybody the overview, what we're talking about is the base case scenario where you sell your rental income, you identify within 45 days the replacement, and then you close 135 days later, you have 180 days. That's the standard traditional. Since I don't do anything standard or traditional, my first 1031 was more complex, and it's known as a reverse 1031, where somebody came to me or rather, I wanted to buy a property. I knew I was really excited. In order to pay for it, I had to sell something, but I didn't know when I would do that. So walk us through all the different like creative ways that you can take advantage of this tax deferral because we don't want you to think that if you don't do it the standard way, it doesn't apply. There might be a perfectly legal, creative way, albeit more complex and or expensive, to get to the same place. Sure. And in fact, the reverse exchange is a good example of how you can address today's market. So we had talked about before that today's market is a fast pace, multiple offers, bidding wars. Uh, with a regular 1031 exchange and you're selling first and you've locked in your gain, and if for some reason you can't find suitable replacement property or you can't close on it for whatever reason, it becomes a failed exchange and you have to pay tax. And there's no way to go back and undo that. With a reverse exchange, it's the opposite. So you can take all the time you want, find the right property that's suitable for you, do your due diligence, etc. And you're actually closing on the purchase of your new property, your replacement property first. Then you have 45 days to identify what you're going to sell. And in a lot of cases, people know exactly what that is. But if you don't, you've got 45 days to figure that out. And then you've got a total of 180 days to actually sell and close on your current property. So it really allows you to deal with this type of a market, find the right property, and eliminate the risk by closing first. 
the challenges, as you, as you know, is it's more complicated. So to a pure reverse exchange would mean that the IRS would let you go out and buy your new property, take title to and own both at the same time, and then sell the existing property. They don't allow that. They've set up this parking arrangement. So we, as the qualified intermediary, actually has to take and hold what they call park legal title to the new property, and that gives you the 180 days in which to sell your existing property. Uh, the challenge is lenders are not exactly thrilled with us holding title to your property. So there's some operational issues in terms of buying and closing. If you're in a position to pay all cash, great, then it's not an issue. If there's a lender involved, we have to kind of walk through that and find a lender who's willing to do that, et cetera. But it really is a nice tool for addressing today's market and eliminates a lot of the risk. Yeah, and I would just say um, there are lenders that are very familiar with this. I mean, it's like anything else, right? If it's significant enough for you and you're willing, willing to put in the legwork and make the calls and have the meetings and so on and so forth, you can do it. If you want a turnkey solution and you make one call and they say no, well, then you're going to pay taxes. Um, in my particular case, there's a few things I like less than paying taxes. Um, so I'm willing to do a lot of work and I was able to do it reverse 1031. That was in, I don't know, 25 years ago. And I rolled it into this This It was an investment property. Two years later, my intent changed. I moved into the investment property. It became my primary home. Four years later, as a result of a divorce, I moved out, turned it back into an investment property. Now I'm 1031-ing that and all the gains, and we're literally talking millions of dollars of gains. And I'm going to 1031 that into this diversified portfolio of triple net leases and some land and some other things. And I will swap until I drop, and my kids will have a separate <laughs> basis, right? So, like, no taxes on any of my investment property on my primary homes that became investment properties. It's an incredibly powerful tool. It's completely legal. You just may have to do things a little bit different than if you didn't know about it, but it's well worth it. That's, that's absolutely true, yep. And personally, I would only do reverses because that 45-day period scares me. Um, it's just a lot more challenging, but if you can do that, that's what I would look at first. It's worth the money. And just give us an idea, since we're talking about the money. Um, what what is your firm cost if you're comfortable disclosing that on a podcast? And, sure. Um, you know how many of these things do you do? Does it work domestically only? Good question. Um, so let me answer both in the industry perspective and then also what our firm charges. So you kind of get a flavor. Uh, it's different when you compare the East Coast to the West Coast. So the West Coast there tends to be more exchange companies, more competition. Um, so on the West Coast, for a regular exchange, you're going to see pricing of about $700 per exchange to maybe 1000 to $1,200 on the high side uh, for just a regular exchange. And that should include the first sale and the first purchase in the transaction. Uh, we're at $899 for the first sale and the first purchase. And then any additional transactions, if you buy multiple properties, each additional closing is $300 to, to process that. On the East Coast, you're going to see some down at the $700 level, but it's usually eight or nine hundred, uh, and I've seen them as high as twenty-five hundred for a standard exchange. You're you're getting a lot of sole practitioners, a lot of mom and pop shops, um, attorneys get into the business, and they just charge more for that. When you get into the reverse exchanges, uh, you have to be very careful here. 
Uh, there's a lot of firms that'll price it cheap, but they're taking shortcuts. Um, so a good qualified intermediary that really knows what they're doing in a reverse exchange is probably going to be in the $6,000 to $8,000 category or, or range for a regular reverse 1031 exchange. East Coast, you're probably going to see a little bit higher than that. Um, I've seen some go as high as $25,000. So unless this is like a $500 million deal, <laughs> that's probably ridiculous. Um, so six to 8000 would be a good standard fee for reverse exchanges. If you see uh, fees that go much less than that, be very careful. It, it always makes me wonder why and how they could pull that off. Okay, terrific. You, you'd also ask to follow up oh, on uh, uh, domestic properties. Right. So the, the 1031 exchange typically is domestic. It has to be domestic for domestic. So you're selling U.S. property. You have to buy U.S. property. The one thing that a lot of people don't realize, and there's even articles out there that say you can't do it, but that's a foreign property transaction. So you can 1031 exchange foreign property as long as you're exchanging for other foreign property. So it has to be foreign for foreign. You cannot do foreign to U.S. or U.S. to foreign. It has to be all U.S. or all foreign property. Uh, so that can be done. It just depends on whether you have a significant U.S. tax consequence that's worth going through the headaches to do that. Uh, we're one of the few firms that will actually handle the, f the foreign property transactions. Cool. Okay, so I think we've covered sort of the benefit, some of the um, approaches, how you can uh, repurpose, if you will, assets to take advantage of this, some of the fees and some of the, the rules. What else do you think is important for somebody who's either never heard of a 1031 or now is starting to think about it, like we've piqued their interest? What else do you think people should know? Well, you know, one of the things that a lot of people don't talk about is the actual closing process and the settlement or closing statement. Um, if you're selling a rental property and you're getting close to closing, they're going to come up with a, an estimated settlement statement. And on that statement, there's really going to be three buckets, if you will, of, of items or costs. The first bucket will be things like uh, your true selling expenses, your broker's commission, title, escrow, uh, documentary transfer tax, recording fees, etc. Those are what we call permissible 1031 exchange expenses. The other two buckets, the first or the second bucket, would be any costs related to a lender-related item. So usually it's loan payoff fees, a demand statement fee, things like that. And that's not usually a whole lot of money. And the third bucket is going to be your operating expenses. So prorated rents, prorated property taxes, HOA fees, the things that are really a month-to-month -month expense. So the whole issue here is you're selling property, and then at the closing, they're going to use your net proceeds to pay all three buckets. The first bucket's permissible, so you can pay those and it will not trigger any tax consequences. The second and the third bucket are non-permissible exchange expenses. You can still use the net proceeds to pay for those. It does not hurt your 1031 exchange, but those dollar amounts will be taxable. So, And very few people talk about that. So the, what you can do just before closing, get that estimated settlement statement. We can help you go and you know kind of add everything up in the various buckets. In the second and third buckets, if it's a net debit, which it typically is, uh, you can actually put out-of-pocket funds into the closing to cover those so it doesn't trigger taxable boot. It's not usually a huge amount of money, so a lot of the clients just say, you know what, 
doesn't matter. Just let it go, and I'll pay a little bit of tax. But if you want to get 100% tax deferred, then you can always put out a pocket cash and cover it. Okay, and that brings up another question. I think many, myself included, many other people tend to um, have mortgages. I happen to like mortgages because of the leverage effect, and you know, if I'm making a positive investment, it's enhanced. Um, what? How do you treat mortgages and the replacement property? Good question. In, in fact, I, I'm going to kind of take it a little deeper on that too. So the mortgage is paid off at the closing. So you sell your current property, and then part of the closing process, they'll pay off the debt, uh, and that is permissible. It does not create any tax problems. Uh, then you go to find your replacement property, and there's really two requirements on the, repla the uh, replacement property side. One is to acquire property that is equal or greater in value than what you sold. So if you're buying one or you're buying multiple properties, the total of what you buy should be equal or greater than what you sold. The second requirement is all of your cash needs to be reinvested. So the equity that comes out of the sale has to be reinvested. Um, you could pull cash out if you want to, but it will be taxable. So most people want to reinvest all the cash. Um, what I would do is reinvest all the cash if you want to keep some, reinvest it, wait three or four months, then do a cash out refinance, and that would not be taxable. So don't pull it out at the transaction level, pull it out later. Then going back to your question, so you've reinvested equal or greater in value, You're, you've reinvested your equity, the difference on the purchase side is going to be the missing link, which is your mortgage. You paid off a mortgage on the sales side, so you, you don't have that cash available. So most investors are going to get a brand new mortgage on the purchase side. Um, and so whatever you bought property for minus whatever equity you've reinvested, the difference is going to be new debt. You can buy the property for all cash, so you can replace your old debt with out-of-pocket cash if you want to. Uh, just most of us don't have that kind of cash laying around, so you're almost always going to have to get new debt. So the requirement isn't that the debt is the same. That's just the, the difference. That's the, that's the plug for the calculation. The requirement is that the equity gets reinvested. Exactly. You know, A lot of people talk about it from the bottom up. They say you got to replace your equity, you got to replace your debt. Well, it's not completely accurate because you don't have to replace your debt. You do have to replace it, but you have to put in cash. It also ignores the closing costs at the top level. So, you know, some folks are in trouble because they've got a whole bunch of credit card debt uh, or whatever it might be. So at the closing, they're required to pay off these credit cards or, or other items. And that's not permissible. It's going to create taxable boot. So rather than go from bottom up and just say, you know, replace your equity, replace your debt, we start from the top down. Got your sales price, subtract your permissible selling expenses, and then we know what to reinvest. And it will automatically carve out anything that's not permissible. Cool. And so for people that have done this more than once or like the whole swap until you drop, what happens on the second sale? How does that basis or whatever you call it get transferred into the next investment and then the next investment? Sure. Uh, in fact, let me use kind of a straight across the board example first. Uh, so let's say you're selling a million dollar asset and your basis is $400,000. So you've got a gain of 600000 you sold that, you do a 1031 exchange, you buy another replacement property at exactly the same amount, a million dollars. 
your cost basis will be exactly the same. That $400,000 cost basis gets slid over to the new property. It'll be adjusted a little bit for some of the closing costs, but effectively be the same cost basis. Now, instead, let's say you bought uh, a new replacement property at million two. So your replacement uh, or your cost basis in the replacement property will be your $400,000 that gets carried over Plus, you've traded up by 200000 so that gets added to the cost basis. So now you have a new cost basis of $600,000 that you can actually depreciate, and you still have that built-in $400,000 in taxable gain that's been deferred. Then, uh, so that's the first transaction. Second transaction, you sell, and so you bought the, that property for a million two. Maybe now you sell it for a million five. So you've had another gain of $300,000 on top of that. You sell that property to another 1031 exchange. You've got the original $400,000, or sorry, $600,000 in gain, and you've got a new $300,000 in gain. All of that gets deferred again into the next property. And your cost basis gets pushed over again. So everything just keeps getting moved over to the new property. The cost basis is recalculated every time, and et cetera. And as long as you never sell and cash out, you never pay the tax. Which is a beautiful thing. I mean. It is a yeah, a wonderful thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful. I can't think of anything that's going to generate wealth faster than being tax smart in this fashion. If you have rental real estate, right? They're I mean, very it's true. A gift. It's a gift. Um, so let's let's talk about this scenario for just a quick second. I buy this property. It's a fixer upper. I have the deferred gains that are carried forward. And now, a year later, I come up, uh, I have half a million dollars, and I put that in, and I fix it up. That just adds to my basis. Even though it's after-tax dollars, I don't have the tax deferral, you can continue to run your business just like you would, and it increases the basis. You don't have to do it all at once. And in fact, it's hard to do construction, although it's possible, but it's hard, right? Renovations. Go ahead. Tell exactly us a little right. bit about that. Yeah, whatever you, whatever uh, repairs or maintenance, and it really has to be capital improvements. So any capital improvements you make to the property would be added to your cost basis. Any repairs, maintenance, you know, just general painting, fixing things that are broken, stuff like that, it gets expensed as an operating expense. Uh, putting on a brand new roof, you know, uh, adding a pool, adding a room, those are capital expenses would be added to the cost basis. And then you just depreciate over a period of time. That's exactly right. Um, you alluded to an improvement exchange where you can actually do a 1031 exchange, sell your current property, buy new property, and make improvements to it. That can be done through a 1031 exchange. Uh, there's different names for it. Improvement 1031 exchange, a build-a-suit exchange, a construction exchange. But like you said, they're very difficult. You've got 180 days to complete that in. It's really tough to do it. Uh, they are done. We do a few of those every month. But it's pretty tight with the deadline. So usually it works a lot better if you build or buy property that is equal or greater in value already. And then once you close, you can do any kind of repairs, maintenance, or capital improvements after the fact. Yeah. One thing that I want to have the listeners contemplate is an area that I'm thinking about. Again, I haven't received a bid or I'm not in contract, so I don't have any relinquished property. It's just for sale. But one of the opportunities that I'm sort of contemplating is multifamily housing via prefab. And so I'm speaking to modular homes and prefab manufacturers. And can you get me a four 
whatever, four family townhouse prefab and can that be manufactured, delivered and installed in that 180 days? Construction stick built is unlikely, but now if you go modular or prefab, maybe. Absolutely. That's a, that's a good example. So anytime you do modular prefab, uh, we actually have a couple clients back east that uh, work with a company who does log cabins. They're effectively prefab. They bring in the logs and they're already pre-cut and they just stack them and put them together. And it, it, So those type of things would absolutely work. Very doable with an improvement 1031 exchange. Um, like you said, sticks up from the ground up. That's probably not going to happen. It's very difficult, but... Um, it is possible. It, uh, on the improvement exchanges, it's whatever's paid for and completed by the 180-day qualifies. So as, as an example, let's say you sell an asset for a million dollars. You do a 1031 exchange, and you buy dirt for $250,000. Um, all we care about from a 1031 exchange perspective is that you have to reinvest a million dollars in value. Uh, you've already bought the dirt for 250. We've got 750 to go. Um, maybe the project you want to build out is a five million dollar uh, office building. Um, we don't care about the extra four million. So all we have to do within that 180 day window is make sure that you get another 750 thousand dollars of value completed. So as long as we can pay for and complete construction. For that extra 750, so we have a total cost into the property of a million dollars. We've satisfied the exchange. The rest of the project can be done after the fact. Um, so that's where it's possible. If you need the full ground up completed to satisfy your value, that's going to be really tough. Cool. So now I have a question that um, you, you may not be prepared for, and we may have some some inside insight that we wouldn't have otherwise. Since you sit at like the epicenter of big real estate transactions and volume and so on, are you seeing reinvestment opportunities that are um, crowded and perhaps not so attractive in your eyes versus other areas? Like what areas do you think people should be looking at for reinvestment based on where you sit, which is different than where we sit and tends to be really local, right? Like I'm looking across the street. I'm looking across the, the city. You handle things all across the United States. You do residential, commercial, industrial. You know, what is what is what are your thoughts from a reinvestment perspective? Yeah, good question. Um, and, and that is the question when people are doing the 1031 exchange. They're like, okay, I'm selling at the top of the market. It's a great time to sell. What the heck am I going to buy? And that's always the the question mark. Um, Ten years ago, we saw a lot of people exchanging in a Class A multifamily. Now, Class A multifamily very pricey and almost frothy, if you will, um, and nobody knows where that's going to go. So we're in multifamily, the trend we're seeing in a lot of areas is more of a value-add play now. Instead of going for Class A property, they go for Class B minus, maybe Class C plus. Maybe they spend two to $5,000 per door. They add washer-dryer in the unit. Uh, you know, simple things like that that increases the rental value you can charge for that. All of a sudden, they're their C plus becomes a, a B plus, maybe even an A minus property, and the value goes up. So we're seeing a lot of that uh, activity um, in states like California, uh, New York. You know, you're finding property that just doesn't cash flow, doesn't pencil out. Um, so the question is, what do we do? If you're selling on this side of the street and you exchange to the other side of the street, what have you really accomplished? Uh, so we're 
we're careful to point out to investors, you have to define your goals and objectives, and the 1031 exchange has to put you in a better position, and only you can define what that means to you. So if you sell on one side of the street and you've got a Class C property and you buy across the street and you've got a Class A property, and that's what you're looking to do, it puts you in a better position. Um, so you have to define that. Uh, we're finding uh, more people going to uh, public storage, self-storage, uh, things like that, because it, it just has a better cash flow and whatnot. I think things like multifamily Class A are priced out. Um, office and retail, you just get all sorts of opinions. It's all across the board out there. Retail especially has got all sorts of potential risks with the Internet kind of taking over and, and what have you. Um, so we see a lot of people who are leaving states like California, New York, and going to states where cash flows better. Um, there's a lot of states that will pencil out almost immediately where uh, California, New York do not. Well, so I kind I'm of rambled there. But. Yeah, I'm in that position. I'm selling a significant asset in New York. Um, I refuse to look at any reinvestment in New York because you'll you'll enjoy this, Bill. I've also um, re-domiciled. So I'm no longer a New York resident, and in fact, I've chosen the wonderful state of Wyoming, which is income um, tax-free to re-domicile. And for my 1031s, I'm not going to base my decision on taxes, but I am looking carefully at states that are also tax-free, like Nevada and Florida and Texas, because now all of a sudden I could take a heavily taxed property in New York that doesn't really pencil out, and reinvest via 1031, defer all my taxes going forward, and be in an income-free tax state with a property in an income-free tax state, and now 100 cents on the dollar are really working for me. Absolutely, yep. Funny you should say that. We just uploaded our application yesterday to the Division of Banking in Wyoming. So we're actually launching a trust company in Cheyenne. Good. So uh, hopefully nine months from now, we'll get approval and be up and running in Cheyenne. Awesome. Um, Anything else you want the listeners to know? Uh, you know, what you were saying just triggered a thought. So leaving the state, California is the only state that does this at this point, but it's something for listeners to be aware of. Um, they have what they call the California clawback provision. That's more of a nickname than anything. Um, and they've always had this, they've always taken that position, which is you sell California property, you 1031 exchange out of state. Uh, they take the position that it's deferred, but you owe taxes to California in the future when you sell it cash out and pay the tax. Up until 2013, they really didn't have any tracking mechanism. Now they've put, as we joke, we put they put the claw and claw back. So now every year when you file your tax return, you have to report to California as to what the status of that property is. Uh, so the end result is as long as you keep exchanging over and over and over, you never sell, never cash out, and never pay the tax, you'll never pay California. If you pass on, you get the step-up in cost basis, you never pay California. Uh, but if you ever sell cash out and pay the tax, then California wants their quote-unquote fair share. Um, and there's an annual reporting requirement. So even if you completely exit the state, you move out of the state, you sell all your assets in the state, you still have to file in California and report the, the status of that property. The, more of a pain than anything, uh, but as long as you're aware of that and you just keep exchanging, you'll never pay. And California is the only state. Are there any other states that are contemplating adding? Not that we're aware of. Uh, there have been other states in the past that have had similar uh, thoughts or, or similar uh, laws, but usually it's a reciprocal basis. So if the other state uh, defers the tax, then they'll defer the tax. So California is the only one that has become nasty about it. Got it. 
okay, cool. Well, look, this is an awful lot of information. It's probably more daunting than it, it probably sounds more daunting than it really is. The process is smooth. People like Bill can make this thing, you know, headache free, keep you on the right track. Uh, and from my perspective, it's literally probably the single most important reason that I'm in the financial position that I'm in is having kept my nest egg whole since 1998, my very first property and deferring it and then buying investment property and then turning that into my residential property and then turning that back into like, it's perfectly legal. You just have to know how to do it. You have to be forward thinking. You have to be a little bit flexible, but I can't tell you how important it is to defer taxes in life. It's just a huge advantage. And so I hope we've made that point really clear on this podcast. I'm not an expert. I'm just a practitioner. I use people like Bill to facilitate. They do it really, really well. They'll make your life easy. Start to think about replacement property well before the 45 days so that 45 days seems like a, a piece of cake and it's not a stressful thing. Um, and, you know, contact Bill and his team and ask them questions specific to you. Our paying members are going to have the benefit of asking him questions uh, very shortly. But if you're not, you're just listening to this podcast, get educated, do the homework in advance, save a, yourself a lot of money and create wealth for yourself, your family, your estate, and so on. So, Bill, any closing statements or should we just say thank you very much and we really appreciate your time? I think that's good. Uh, if they have any uh, issues, concerns, questions, be happy to chat. It's always good to brainstorm their strategy, and that'll kind of help uh, walk them through the process and kind of clear up any confusion. Awesome. So what we're going to do is we're going to include a link um, to uh, a landing page that we've created, and you go ahead and click on that and call Bill and take it take it away. And I really think this is um, something that everybody should know about and take advantage if their situation allows, and if it doesn't allow. Make it allow it. <laughs> so true. <laughs> I know. Um, all right, Bill. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Let's uh, take a break here, and we'll regroup in about 20 minutes with the paid members. Okay, sounds good. All right. Thanks so much. Have a Thank great Thank you. You bet. Uh, take care. Bye-bye. Cool. Thank you, Bill. So that does it for another episode of the STRU Podcast. As always, all links mentioned are in the show notes below. And if you found this show helpful, please leave a review on iTunes. If you're serious about short-term rental investing, be sure to check out str.university. Till next time.